Thanks for listening. Jumping into a question and answer session. Looking to bring more of these uh, to you guys. So if you have a question, uh, Patreon supporters, they go to the, the priority line as far as getting these answered. So I have several questions from Patreon supporters and then a few other from social media. If you have a question, you can swing over to the afterburnpodcast.com and submit your question over there or swing over to patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. And you can join and become a Patreon and support the podcast. But digging into this week's questions, um, I have a few for some Patreon supporters. This is from Christopher Franklin. He says, or ask rather, how do you maintain and build your passion for flying when you're several years into your career and flying seems routine? So uh, this is two-part question. This is the first question he asked. You know, for, for me, I have a passion about flying. And while there are definitely days that seem routine, I know I'm fortunate. So when I start feeling kind of like, eh, I don't want to go fly uh, for whatever reason it might be. I definitely kind of do some, you know, inner reflection and realize, hey, just how fortunate I am to be able to go out and do really what I love to do, which is is fly. Um, and for me, I'm fortunate that there's enough variety in what I do that it doesn't really seem routine and it's always, always changing. I can definitely see that if you're flying the same route or doing the same mission every single day where that can get boring. And I'll be honest, I mean, I've absolutely been there. Um, And again, I try to do that inner reflection, realize that there are a lot of people who will never have the opportunities to do what I, what I've done and what I get to do on a daily basis. So I'm fortunate and I'm very thankful for that. So definitely a lot of inner reflection and stop uh, poor pitiful me there. And then his second question is how do you make sure you keep learning and improving? So this definitely also helps that routine portion because there's no such thing as a perfect sortie and you're always learning no matter what. Uh, from day one of pilot training, they'll tell you there's no such thing as a perfect sortie and you're always learning. And I definitely test, there's no way to know it all and there's no way to be perfect at all of it. You, while you hone one skill or get really good at one aspect of whatever aircraft you're flying, there's definitely a, some kind of skill set or some piece of knowledge that's dropping off. The iceberg is only so big. You can only fit so many penguins on it. My iceberg might be a, you know, ice cube uh, compared to some people. But uh, for me, I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to improve. I'm always trying to get better. And the thing I really enjoy personally is, you know, anytime I'm learning a new aircraft or learning a new thing, I, I fully now recognize as many planes that I've flown, just what little essay I have to start with, you know, I'm just focused on starting the plane or taxing out in a new environment, but I do, it's kind of weird, but I do find enjoyment when, you know, the iceberg is there, the penguins are hanging onto it and I can start getting into the weeds, whether maybe it's a fuel burn at this altitude versus this altitude. Uh, so just trying to challenge myself to one, know the plane better, know how it's perform and, and, and do that. So it's, I definitely, I can see where things get routine and that's probably with any career field, but you know, if you're doing something you're passionate about, you'll enjoy it. 
And that's the trick is finding something you're passionate about um, because then you can do that inner reflection. All right, moving on. Gundog4314, uh, he said, here's a weird question. Every time the Navy, Marines, and Army fly, not the Blue Angels, they wear the full battle rattle, survival vest, LPU, which is a life preserver, everything. Sometimes we see Air Force guys just throw on a G-suit and hop in a jet. I'm assuming it's just an organizational thing. Yeah, absolutely. Organizational thing, as well as like some requirement pieces, right? Just at the basic level, if you look at what the Navy's doing versus the Air Force, predominantly Air Force, when we go fly, uh, take Shaw Air Force Base, for instance, there's a lot of airspace that we're training over land. There is definitely airspace we're training over water. We're training over water. You could be 100 miles out from the coast, which is a significant ways out if you punched out and had to float around your dinghy. But there's a pretty good chance that you're going to get picked up by the Coast Guard or someone in a relatively short time period. If you're out on the carrier, God knows where, and you punch out while the carrier is nearby, you might be in some steep seas, hanging out, floating in a raft for a while. Uh, also, you know, in the Air Force, wear the full battle rattle, as you said. It's typically only for operational exercises, RE. So, you know, the base is doing a full two week exercise. So you're basically preparing and you know exercising like you're at war. When you're in combat, you wear the combat vest. So spinning up to the deployment, you'll wear the combat vest just to get used to it. I can say doing the F-16, having all that extra weight on you is definitely not a good thing. Longevity of the body, pulling nine Gs, seven Gs over and over again with all that weight on the body is going to do wear and tear. And you really just don't need to do it in my opinion. Like I know I can wear a vest full of stuff. When I need to, getting a few rides underneath your belt stateside before you deploy is, I think, a smart thing to do just to kind of get used to what everything feels like. Wearing that vest and F-16, especially with all the extra gear and maps and things like that you carry in combat, it's tough to reach behind you and flip switches. So doing that the first time stateside and familiar airport, familiar airspace is beneficial. But on a day-to-day, I think it's it's too much. The Navy you know, they're operating on a football field with a lot of jets and moving parts and wearing their helmet. While it does seem silly to an air force guy, I completely understand why they do it. Um, it's a dangerous environment. So if you get hit with a flight control surface, that's moving, that's operating under thousands of PSI. If you live through it and don't lose a limb, uh, having a helmet on definitely increases your chances of minimizing the injury or surviving from it. Air force, we have bump caps, I have seen my fair share of people uh, slicing their heads open, getting hit, getting knocked out by flight controls, or just doing a pre-flight walk around and bump their head up against a flight control surface that just happens to be sharp. So it's a dangerous environment you're operating in. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of reasons why they, why they do that and why we don't do it. Rob Jones asked, what was my favorite aircraft growing up? Easy. That was a P-51. If you don't love the P-51, then you're not an American. So uh, definitely love the Mustang. Hopefully get to fly that one day. That'd be pretty cool. All right. Digging into a couple other questions on social media. Uh, didn't ask what qualities do you value that you find day-to-day in your pilot peers in the Air Force? Qualities like piloting ability and leadership. So, you know, I, I tell you, like, this is pretty simple. Like being a good dude or dudette, while that's easy to say, and that's pretty broad, there's a lot of facets that go into that. But if you're a person who looks out for others, if you try to bring others up, if in general, you're just a good person, uh, that's people I want to be around, right? And a big piece of that is being 
you know, honest, being dependable, being competent. Uh, those are all factors that go into this. Being a dependable person for me, like I always want to be the person that one, no one worries about. And two, that they, if they ask something of me, they know I can deliver. And into doing that, that becomes being a technical expert at whatever job you're doing, being the person who always follows through, being competent, being a good person. So, um, yeah, I think in the end, it's pretty simple. Like being a good dude or dudette is huge. Um, yeah, he mentions piloting and building leadership. That, that definitely goes into it. You know, if you're a really good person and a good dude or dudette and you're not a good pilot and you're in a fighter squadron, you're not going to be the one that people depend on. You're going to be the people that don't want to fly. So it, it, it's multifaceted, right? There's no one singular thing that if you do this really well, that's it. It's the well-rounded person. Um, and we're, no one is perfect and you're always striving, trying to do that self-reflection, taking feedback from others to see, hey, like maybe I need to work in area X, Y, or Z and make that stronger to make me a better person, to make me a better pilot, to make me a better leader or officer, whatever it might be. Um, and he asks also, if you could describe the ideal fighter attack pilot that you flew next to in one sentence, how would you describe them? I think it's that lethal and in that lethal, right? Because being a fighter attack pilot, the whole point of it is to go out there and break things um, and remove your enemy from the battlefield for your nation, right? But to be lethal, you know, you have to be competent. You have to be the technical expert. You have to be dependable. You have to work hard. And that all goes into it. I know that was one word versus a sentence, but then I gave you a few more words on top of that. So um, again, remember what the, what the job is and the job of a fighter pilot is to go out there and break things. So you need to know how to break those things and how to break them well. All right. If any, are there pilots you work with that have negative qualities that you don't like? Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure there's a few I have that people don't like as well. Um, but I, Real simple, as I talked about being a good dude, the negative qualities for me personally is it's someone you, you don't want to be around that you can't trust. That's, it seems like a no brainer, but there are definitely those people out there. And I think it really comes down to it's ones who are selfish that look out for themselves first and they exist everywhere you go. You know, I'm sure I'm absolutely guilty of, you know, poor qualities for sure at times. But for me, I always try to bring others up. I think I've done a decent job of that. I'm always trying to improve, but I know by doing that one, I'm not only going to become stronger, but the team is going to become stronger in itself. So just realizing that you're greater than, you know, especially when you're in the airport, you're greater than it's, it's a greater cause than just you. So you have to be willing to sacrifice and you have to be willing to look out for others and maybe you pass up an opportunity in order to afford someone else an opportunity. All right. Um, this is getting into the last question. And this is regarding episode thir uh, 23. Sorry, this is Mezzer's mishap. Um, and this comes all the way from Ontario. So friends up north, thanks for listening. This is from Andrew. Um, and so... It's a quick question regarding mishap on episode 23. You mentioned a controlled ejection was potentially an option for this incident. Just wondering uh, what that would look like. Would that be done over a certain patch of dry, uninhabited land or rescue crews at the ready over the base? What altitude, et cetera? So yeah, 
Um, absolutely. And actually just recorded an episode, which will be out. Yeah. Episode 24 should be out before this is out. Um, and that's with Bender. And we actually kind of dig into the episode with a little bit more context, not necessarily talking about the ejection in too much detail, but, um, a controlled ejection was absolutely an option here. And in fact, the accident investigation board, they recommended, they faulted the supervisor of flying for not doing a conference hotel call which is calling Lockheed Martin. Um, again, Bender and I talk about a good reason, a good bit of why those guys didn't make that phone call. And I don't fault them. I think if I was in their position, I would have done the same thing. Um, but the the engineers at Lockheed, based on Messer's configuration or unknown configuration, would have recommended a controlled ejection. So a controlled ejection is going to be a min altitude of 2,000 feet AGL. And at Shaw Air Force Base, there's points at range, which is about five miles south of the field. Um, and it's a postage stamp as far as an F-16 is concerned, but there's it's relatively uninhabited. It's our, where our bombing range is. Um, it's about 10 nautical miles wide by probably 15 nautical miles long. And you'd go out there, you'd flow south, which again is pointing towards more nothingness. Um, you'd be above 2,000 feet and you pull the ejection handle and go. Um, it'd probably still take a little bit of time for rescue crews to get you. But in measure situation, they would start notifying local authorities. They probably have had a helicopter launch um, and just start moving things that direction where it'd been fast. It'd been a faster response as far as that goes. Different bases, all bases have a controlled ejection procedure. So it's going to be flying on a heading over this spot at this altitude to eject how much time and gas you have is going to afford you the opportunity to prepare a little bit more for it. Um, so in Mezzer's case, you know, this one, again, this is not the armchair quarterback. It, a controlled ejection most likely would have resulted in him living. So his seat failed. And what failed on that seat was the fact that he didn't get automatic uh, man seat separation. He didn't get the parachute to open. There's an override handle that you can pull. The accident investigation board again cited an incident from a Tulsa instructor pilot and back in 2014. He ejected at altitude. He recognized his chute didn't open. He pulled the handle. It took him about five seconds to recognize that, pull the handle and get, get a good chute. Measure, they did the study. They said he had 3.67 seconds to pull the handle. Um, Bender and I talked about this in the, in the episode. And I think there's not a single fighter pilot that would have said, Oh yeah, I, I would have pulled that, that handle right. 3.7 or 3.67 seconds from the time you eject with all the things going on from the fact that his aircraft was damaged. It's at night, you know, there's a lot weighing on his mind, the G forces of pulling and getting kicked out of the jet. Um, and then finding that handle alone, uh, just, there's no chance there. So I think in the end, uh, everyone is in agreement. The controlled ejection would have definitely increased his chances of living. Um, how they went down that rabbit hole of, you know, landing the jet versus doing a controlled ejection is something I can completely empathize with because I think if I'd been in the soft position or his flight leads position, um, I probably would have been down that rabbit hole, which again is kind of a scary thing to say and think about. Um, and forces some inner reflection as far as just day to day. But um, yeah, that's a tough one there. So that was a quick hit. Uh, just a few questions. Again, if you're looking to have a 
question answered, you can swing over to afterburnpodcast.com. There's a link to Patreon where if you want to support the podcast, you can do that there. Uh, or if you want to send a question over, feel free free to do that. Again, Patreon supporters, they get uh, priority as far as the questions being answered. But again, thanks for listening in and we'll see you next time.